HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Line, Season 1, Episode 1. Very excited to be part of the Heritage Radio Network family. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-chef and co-owner of Samisa and Ed and Bev's Restaurant in Brooklyn. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a guest as we trace the line of their career through a one-on-one conversation about their childhood, first jobs in food, and the path they chose that led them to become the chef or restaurateur they are today. From how it all began to where they are now and everything in between, this is The Line. My guest today is Zara Tangora. She was born and raised on the North Shore of Long Island in Northport, where her parents ran a catering business called Love and Oven. In 2010, at the age of 26, and with no previous restaurant experience, she opened Brucey, a charming Italian restaurant in Borham Hill. Zara, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I wanted to start by talking about the Love and Oven. So it was this progressive catering company. Your parents opened it in the 70s. Yeah. And they were doing some things that people hadn't really seen yet in food. So I wanted to know, how did your parents get into the food catering business, and uh, what did they serve there? Um, Well, my folks met when my mom was 19 and my dad was 22, and they were both very, like, lost souls looking to kind of um, just do something different with their lives, and so they decided to open this catering business. Um, They were not professional cooks. It wasn't, like, a lifelong dream. Um, and they, you know, they brought really exotic foods to Long Island, like quiche <laughs> and popovers, <Ooh>. uh, chowder. <laughs> no, but these are things that like, you know, people were just kind of getting into, like, you know, in the seven, you read about in the early seventies, um, in history textbooks <laughs> about, um, you know, people really getting into like world food, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll see like people like, oh, we had quiche and we had uh, fondue, puntanesca, and like all these weird things in like one meal that mm-hmm. were just like world foods. Um, so they did that. My dad got like extremely into like Moroccan cooking and he would do like Moroccan chicken, like pi- pigeon pie. And um, what's pigeon pie? It's pastilla, it's Moroccan chicken. So okay. it was like traditionally made with pigeon. Mm-hmm. Um, he would make it with chicken. Um, and you like wrap it inside pastry. They weren't like, ready for pigeon yet. Um, Long Island in, in wasn't ready for pork. Yeah. 
I think people like may still not be ready for pigeon <laughs> in New York. Um, but yeah, they were just, my dad got really into baking and like doing breads and like just doing like really funky kind of stuff. And, and where are they from? Are they born and raised in? Yeah, they're both. Uh, well, Huntington. They okay. were both from Huntington. It was down the block. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're both Long Islanders. And so they were inspired to start it just based on flavors that they had experienced traveling. I, they didn't really travel like mm-hmm. outside of the country. I think that like they were just part of a movement of you know kind of like post hippie, but not like disco you know cocaine like kind of vibe either. Um, just kind of, if you think of like, I always think of my parents as being like part of the like Annie Hall cast, you Mm. know what I mean? Just kind of like, you know, kind of like funky post sixties, like early seventies, you know, funky weirdos. Is it still open today? No, no. They sold it like right after I was born. Oh wow. They had it like before I was born and they sold Mm. it and moved down to Florida to open (laughs) a business called Zaza's Hot Hors d'oeuvres named after me, which was uh, going to specialize in like tasting a piece of the world's cuisine. So you're just going to have like a nibble of, you know, an Italian pastry or my mom always was obsessed with pocket pies, which, you know, she wanted me to make when I went into food someday. She's like, make pocket pies. Like my father, uh, your father and I used to do them. Like pocket pies has like a sexual kind of connotation <laughs> to me. Like it just reminds me of like, doesn't sound know. super appealing. Yeah, I guess. exactly. Yeah. But you know, so they, Although won- I do like hot pockets a lot. I so. love a hot pocket. Yeah. Although they're like very, very dangerous, like and- dangerously hot. Yeah, wait five minutes. Yeah, you exactly. Eat one. Um, so, th- did you move to Florida? Yeah, or? but okay. when I was like a little baby, like this is a part of my history that like doesn't mean like I don't remember it. You gotcha. know what I mean? Um, the business failed, and they moved back to Long Island and totally pursued like very different careers. My mom's a therapist, and my dad became a country club manager. Um, so I guess he stayed in the business. But. So even though you didn't uh, really grow up in the catering business, yeah. and by the time you were around, they were doing other yeah. things, uh, what was childhood like in Northport? Did food dominate your your family life? Was um, it ever present in your home? Or Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, my dad was, like, super, like, busy. He worked like an animal, and, like, we all know that kind of vibe from, like, working in kitchens. He wasn't in the kitchen, but he was, like, you know, running a business um, that was involved with food. So he was busy. So, f- you know, it was special to cook with him and he would like he'd be like this is how you make this bread which as I was just telling you before the show I obviously didn't retain because I've never made bread (laughs) before um but you know I really picked it up like I remember my grandpa really cooking is kind of the like classic like I remember the my grandparents but I really do like I remember my grandpa like this big guy with this like mega belly and like gigantic ears like sitting by the stove he would like make Sunday sauce and he'd like sit by the stove and like nibble out of the sauce like on a high stool like for the entire day. So what was his name? John Tangora as well. My dad was also John Tangora. And so a Sunday sauce for those that don't know, it's, it's like a gravy. It's an all day. <laughs> it's an all day event. It's a red gravy. Exactly. So gravy versus sauce. Why is it called well, one? Why is I it mean, called the other? Well, it's kind of like you know a regional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a Sunday sauce is like meat. You put whatever kind of meat you have around. Uh, ribs, maybe a pork chop, definitely always meatballs, sausage, and you kind of like let it stew down all day. And if you were my grandpa, you would have eaten so much out of it by the time it gets to the table for the rest of the family. There's just like little scraps left. (laughs) There's four ounces at the bottom of the pot that are left for the family. Yeah, exactly. And so did you ever get to help? Were you like on the knee, on the Uh, stool, sitting with grandpa? You know what I really helped him with is like, I remember so vividly, it's weird, like the things that stick out, like your childhood memories, um... I remember going out with him. He had a beautiful garden. They lived in, like, you know, a pretty, like, poor area in Huntington Station. 
my grandfather had the nicest garden. He would grow the most beautiful tomatoes um, and pick like dandelions out of the garden to make dandelion salad and stuff. But I remember going out and picking tomatoes with him. And like to this day, it's like that smell of like, you know, a tomato on the vine when you just like smell it or it's like it has that like peppery scent. Uh, that was how I helped. And it's like probably one of my strongest food memory ever is like picking tomatoes. Anything else in his repertoire besides the Sunday? Oh gravy? yeah, he made pizza rustica. Well, you probably haven't had that. You're not a dairy guy. What is it? I'll I'll tell it I'll tell it to you. Um, pizza rustica is like you mix together ricotta and like ground salami um, and like eggs, and then you like pack it inside a pizza crust, almost in like a shape of a lasagna though. Mm-hmm. Pizza crust on the bottom, then you like layer provolone and like prosciutto. Then this filling, another pizza crust, more provolone and prosciutto, more filling, and then you know pack the whole thing up with a, a topping of pizza crust and you bake it. So that it's, would, a, it's a pizza crust lasagna, essentially. Basically, basically. yeah. It's and then do delicious. you cut it into squares? Yeah, you cut it into squares. And it's like an Easter thing. You eat it with your hands like yeah. a pizza? Or? Well, you can, I guess you could. You, you usually could. use a knife and fork. Yeah. Or okay. just a fork. Pretty sloppy. It's a, it's a sloppy thing. Um, a lot of breads, like Easter bread and uh, mm-hmm. the best sticky buns like in the entire world. We used to make them at Brucey's. We always put it on the menu, John Tangora sticky buns. That's awesome that yeah, it, that it carried through yeah. from what you had uh, what you had learned from him. Yeah. So being a kid, you're around all this food. Uh, you're you're by the water. Was that a part of your life? Did you go fishing? Being on the North Fork, yeah. I know that there's uh, the North Fork is having a a, a moment. I suppose that yeah. people are discovering it somehow for the first time, and that <laughs> it has a, a bounty. There's wineries there. Yeah. Um, what was it like being out there before it was quote unquote cool to go? V- vacation for the summer well i'll tell you what was on the north fork what was really different well like in terms of like fishing again i would go out my grandpa to like the harbor sometimes but i don't know you probably shouldn't eat what you catch over and like you know cold spring harbor but um what was really different was going out to montauk like Mm -hmm. when i was growing up like montauk was uh for people who say montauk like montauk (laughs) (laughs) montauk used to be like a real shithole like it was like a terrible like Mm -hmm. no actually i shouldn't say terrible that's not the right word but it was just like a real rundown place for like locals you know what i mean um it was a fishing rundown in the best possible way Yeah, yeah it's like where people from long island so rich people will go to the hamptons you know and then like you know, as normal folk would go out to Montauk, and it was so. Just, for people that don't know, Montauk is at the way, way at the end. way. End, they yeah. call it the end. Yeah, but it was like good old fashioned family fun. You know, right. there's like a pitch and putt, and like soft serve ice cream, and like the most famous person you would ever see there was Chevy Chase, which was like amazing. And I did see him there many times as a kid. I mean, that's awesome. It was great Christmas yeah. vacation. P.S. Favorite movie ever. So for me, it was a really big deal. Um, but that was like the thing that I think was like most different. And now you like, you know, Montauk is very much like last time I was there, I think I saw Terry Richardson. And I was like, this place is over. Not that there's anything wrong with Terry Richardson. I mean, God bless, but <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's gotten more commercialized than what happens on the North Fork possibly. So, yeah, yeah. uh, when you spent time there as a kid, what was, uh, was it? like being in in the country or was it was it really built up i mean what were the 80s like no i mean it was definitely much more chill but people are just like not obsessed with food the way they are today right and with Mm -hmm. like being everywhere right so like i'm here it's beautiful i heard this place is cool i need to take a picture of it and put it on my instagram and like i went to this cool you know what i mean and and there's good and bad things about that stuff so you know like most places in the 80s or the 90s there's a little bit more of a purity to it you know what i mean um I always thought of Long Island, you know, Long Island gets like a little bit of a rap from like certain parts of Long Island that we all know. Like, you're like, oh, I'm from Long Island. Like, oh, you're from Long Island. You got to go to the mall, get your coffee and talk about it. I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> um, 
but really it's like a beautiful place and by the way you sound like that when you're not on the radio that is your normal (laughs) that is your normal conversational like Eli you want to go get a coffee and we'll (laughs) talk and catch up um but no it's beautiful and it still is and there's like uh gorgeous farmland and really nice like like a bird sanctuary out there that my family and I always go to. Or so like, you get back quite a bit? Your family? Yeah. Your mom is still yeah, there? Yeah, my your mom lives still there. there? No, my dad lives in North Carolina okay. and Asheville now. But um, yeah, I go visit my mom a lot. Uh, so, you know, as you're growing up there, uh, you decided, well, you you made the decision that you wanted to go to FIT. Yeah. Right? So that was became your kind of trajectory away yeah. from Long Island. I'm curious about that part of your life. Obviously, you've always been creative. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the fashion world interests you and how that shaped the earlier part of your life? Yeah. Well, um, when I was in high school, I was really into, like, underground hip-hop. I was really into, like, graffiti and, like... Um, that whole culture and like I really just wanted to like be in the city I mean growing up like close to the city you know you spend a lot of time there anyway so it wasn't like I need to get myself to the big city someday you know what I mean like I it was an easy transition kind of but um so I went there for fine arts and I just wanted to like I just wanted to be an artist like I was like a like a 18 year old who was like just learning about like world affairs and politics and art and I was like I'm gonna make like political art and like you know what I mean like it was when Bush was still president I was like angry about that I was making artwork about it a lot and uh yeah I just wanted to be in New York and I really thought my career would be as an artist like actually my dad who I admire very much and he's extremely creative aside from being a great cook he's also a really great artist and an art history buff um and has a degree in art history. So a lot of that, like, I was just like, you know, we always want to kind of secretly emulate our parents in some way. Maybe not always, but I sure did. And I really, really respected my dad and kind of just wanted to be just like him. So I was like, he was an artist and I want to be an artist. And, you know, that's just how I saw my, like, life going. So where did you move to specifically when you moved Uh, to the Well, I I lived in the dorms on Uh 27th and 7th, which was a very interesting experience i had a roommate who was like straight from cartagena colombia who was like seriously like majorly into cocaine and just like you know like in the most serious way ever uh which you know hey no judgment but um it was just like a really like funny experience but then i I moved to a really chill apartment actually up on like 106 between west end and riverside so you're in manhattan yeah as a young woman yeah even though you had been in uh close by on long island what was it like to um gain that kind of separation from your parents and be free for the first time in the city and then have such a clear idea of what you wanted to do with your life. Yeah. Well, you know, I was actually talking about this with my boyfriend the other day and I was saying that like we were uptown in my old neighborhood and I was remembering like, you know, that feeling of like being an adult for the first time. And you're like, it's, it's especially interesting when you're in the city and you're an adult for the first time because you really feel like an adult. I'm like, this is my day. Today I can, like, you know, I'm going to go get my nails done and then I'm going to go wherever I feel like for lunch. And I live by myself, too. So it was really cool. Um, it didn't feel, like, so crazy, like, being away from home. But it was really, like, liberating feeling like being on my own in the city. And actually, this is kind of cheesy, but I think maybe some of the female listeners out here could uh, relate to this. Like, it was when Sex in the City was, like, a big-time show, you know? And there was some kind of feeling about being, like, empowered as a woman and living on your own in the city that was just, like, really, really exciting. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but it's, like, it's funny. Like, people tell you that... It, 
advice when you're younger and they're like, oh, you know, you think you knew what you wanted, but you don't know yet. And I was like, no, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a famous artist. Like, um, I'm going to be like the female neck face and I'm going to like write all like, you know, I'm going to write all over the city. And then like someday I'm going to be just like showing galleries all over the world. And that was like definitely what I was going to do, like 100 um, so, percent. So you were going out, you were exploring the city, you were yeah. seeing graffiti, you were of probably course. going to a lot of gallery shows. Yeah. Were you also at that point involved with anything with food? Were you I well, mean, I was a beyond just cook. beyond going out and eating in yeah. New York City? Did you feel that you had a a passion that was yeah I mean I was a I was a home cook you know but in the way where like at that time when I think about it I would be like going to Trader Joe's and I would like get pierog- <laughs> frozen pierogies but I would like doctor them up with like you know mushrooms and like you know like cooking some kind is of cooking hey if you were exactly turning on the stove but, you know doing some cooking I, I think I, I was a little bit more than that <clears throat> a little bit more than that but I certainly wasn't like you know um aspiring to be a chef but it was like the first time when you know i would have friends over a lot and cook for them and people would be like oh my god your food's so good you should totally be a chef and i was like psh, whatever i'm, like, I would I'm gonna just be like, a graffiti artist yeah chef. what a I'm stupid like, job a i'll chef have my be. own chef <laughs> thank you uh so you're in the city you graduate from fit and you get a job doing window installations yeah. you're, you're doing what you feel like you really want to be doing you feel like yeah, you're in the in the job. right spot um you do that for a while and then uh you move on and you decide that you need a bit of a break yeah and so you go on tour with a musician friend uh this becomes a decision that uh alters the course of your life yeah. can you talk about uh going on this tour and what sure. happened yeah this is where the story kind of changes this is like the moment that everything just became really different um I went on tour with my friend. His name was Mr. Liff, and we were touring with another group called The Coup, uh, the year 2005, <laughs> um, or, or like 2005, 2006. It was in December. Um, so we were going between. Uh, it was like a nationwide tour, and then it was going to go international. And I just was like 22 at the time, and I really just wanted to kind of like travel and see the country, and like I was kind of like such a cool thing for me you know because I, I told you I was really into underground hip-hop and I was like oh my god this is so fun like you know I got to hang out with all these people and like be around my friends so anyway um between San Diego and Arizona it was like 4 a.m and our tour bus driver uh drove us off a 40-foot cliff in the middle of the desert and the bus exploded and I had been holding uh, a red stripe in my hand and it you know, it crushed in my hand and like sliced my whole hand basically off. Um, and then yada, yada, yada. Uh, and here I am now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so he, so he fell asleep, <laughs> he fell asleep and drove off a cliff and then it was, it was horrifying. You know, it was, and what, who was awake in the bus? We were all awake okay. actually. Um, it was funny cause we were talking about Anchorman right before we went on air. Um, we were awake we basically, without boring with the details, we all needed to be awake because if we had been in our bunks, it would have been a wrap for everyone. Okay. So a bunch of us were in the front watching Anchorman. I had bought it like in a snap decision at Tower Records. So this really dates the entire situation um, right before I went. And then the people in the back, uh, the Clips record, Hella Half No Fury had just come out. And so people in the back were listening to that. Um yeah and so we're all awake and everyone lived actually uh without any like injuries that were too serious my injuries were amongst the worst there was a couple other folks who got hurt pretty badly um 
but yeah, it was a it was a horrifying ordeal. I mean, I've talked about it so many times at this point that it feels like telling a story about a movie that I saw. Like, oh my god, and then and then it exploded. You know what I mean? But it really happened, and it's. it's at this point, does it feel like it is your story, or have you shared it so much that it's has it lost some well, of its power for you? I think that like. Mm, that's an interesting question, actually. As much as like I've been asked about this, no one's ever really asked me that. Um, it hasn't really lost its power. I think it's just kind of been... I've come to terms with it. It doesn't scare me. You know what I mean? Like, when I think about it, it doesn't scare me as much to be around. I used to be really terrified to be around, like, a barbecue grill or anything that could potentially explode. You know what I mean? Like, those fears have dissipated. And I feel like what's happened since then has been so like rich and wonderful, not monetarily rich necessarily, but, uh, you know, the experiences have been so rich that like, um, it's felt validating in a way. Like, it's like, okay, well this happened and then all this other stuff happened. So, you know what I mean? Um, but it's, it is crazy for anyone out there who's ever been in an accident or had like something just happen that's extremely unexpected. I mean, you probably relate, you know, it's just like, it's a weird thing. It's like a worst nightmare scenario. Do you think about it every day? Do you carry it with you in the back no, of your mind? No, I don't really, actually. I don't think about it every day. Um, and when I do think about it, I just feel incredibly lucky. It is a grounding thing. It is something that I come back to to kind of gain perspective. You know, it's very easy. We all lose our perspective all the time. And I think, like, we all have to kind of have a way to kind of get it back. You know, and you think maybe you just think of a worst case scenario. You think of someone, you know, who's had an unfortunate thing happen or a story you read in the news for me. Like if I start kind of like getting upset about something that's kind of insignificant or I get in like a silly fight with a friend or a family member, I'm like, okay, like recenter. This is like very precious time that you have. It could have all been easily ripped away and it can all be easily ripped away again. You know what I mean? So just like enjoy the lovely time that you have on earth. You know what I mean? So I think that's actually the biggest takeaway. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com.
Welcome back to The Line. On today's episode, I'm joined by Zara Tangora. She opened Brucey in Brooklyn in 2010. When she opened the restaurant at the age of 26, she was the head chef and owner and had had previously held no New York restaurant cooking jobs. Uh, we were talking before the break about an accident that sort of changed the trajectory of your life. Uh, you were in a tour bus with your friend, Mr. Liff, mm-hmm. and uh, it crashed. It went over... Uh, it, it fell 40 feet and yeah. uh, you were you were badly injured um, after the accident uh, you received a settlement mm-hmm. um, my question is uh, why not start a company that was more aligned with either music or the arts or something that uh, had previously interested you greatly and you thought was your direction in life how did that settlement lead to you doing something unlike what you had done before Um, well, okay. So after my accident, um, I spent like a year or two just kind of like enjoying life and kind of taking some opportunities to travel and do stuff that I would have not been able to do before. So I went and lived in France for a while, um, and traveled throughout Italy and Spain and it was really nice. Um, and I was always really conscious of like, okay, well you got this money, so have a little bit of life experience, but like, you know, do something wise with it. Um, do something that you think is important and that matters because this is like, you know, uh, you don't come across this all the time. Um, so I love to cook by that point. I'm like, you know, 25, 24, 25. And like my interest in food and cooking is like growing. And I had initially had an idea to start a very small um, pasta shop. Like, you know, I'm from Long Island, as uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I'm from Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so pasta shops were like a big thing over there or like in the tri-state area in general. And I was like, OK, like I love cooking. I'm going to start something really small um, and, you know, make fresh pasta and cheese and have like salamis hanging from the ceiling and it'll be really fun. Um And I was, like, getting more and more inspired by just, like, places I was going out to. You know, you get older, you start going to, like, better restaurants and, like, experiencing food. And food was just becoming more and more important to me. Um, So I had met somebody uh, in the dog park by where I live who uh, was a really great guy. He was really nice. And um, him and his wife were lovely. And, you know, they would come over for dinner. And he was like, oh, I really think you have a lot of talent here i don't know you know how it is when people are like when you're a good cook you cook for your friends like you should open a restaurant you should totally open a restaurant and at first you're like i at least was like i don't want to open a restaurant like what are you talking about my mom would say you should be a chef you should open a restaurant and i was like no and i was so against it especially once i heard my mom say it then i was like now i'm definitely never opening at that point it was a really bad idea once your mom is exactly i was like oh this is never gonna happen um but, you know, people just kept saying it and I kept getting like more and more into like just throwing, not only cooking, but like really throwing dinner parties and like the whole picture, the flowers, the music, you know, the entire experience. Um, so by the time I met this gentleman, he was looking to kind of start a new project and he wanted to invest in what I was doing. And he actually was the one who found the Brucey space um, listed online and we went to look at it and it, I had still at this point thought pasta shop, like tiny hole in the wall spot. Um, but you know, anyone who's ever been to Brucey, it's a, it's a pretty big restaurant. Um, so it just kind of went from there and we're like, all right, now we're going to have a restaurant. And long story short, this guy, um, ended up 
deciding to do something else and not wanting to be part of the project about two weeks before we opened. And then so there I was. I had this gigantic restaurant. Um, no experience. <laughs> uh, I mean, I worked at, like as a pizza delivery girl. You know what I mean? But so you were ready at that point, yeah. I, I, my pizza delivery girl <laughs> experience uh, and me were ready to open a gigantic seat re- restaurant, a 72 in seat restaurant, seat restaurant in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, and I was like, okay, we got this. So you briefly just alluded to the fact of creating an experience for people when yeah. when you're cooking prior to opening up the restaurant yeah. um all the time when people ask me for a delicious spot to go to dinner that has an, a nice vibe a neighborhood vibe that's friendly that's inviting or they had a special occasion yeah. i would send them to brucey you were able to cultivate um a type of environment there and a type of experience. Um, can you talk about what made Brucey special in your mind and about the type of experience that you tried to create for your guests? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I think uh, a wise woman once told me that everyone's greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. And so I think the inexperience that I brought to Brucey was, um, you know, at times like a problem and at times like something that like I wish you know you look back and like oh, I wish I had just like had more training beforehand but I think that the authenticity of like what we were doing um and what I tried to do really translated to people feeling like they were in some place that was kind of different you know what I mean and so um I'm service oriented like I really I mean the food is obviously extremely important but I really wanted people to come in and feel like they were not just like at another restaurant. You know what I mean? Like not just like at another place, like, oh, we're going to the restaurant tonight. You know, I wanted it to feel special and I wanted it to feel it's really important, you know, and this is maybe a whole nother conversation. But like restaurants are just really important if, you know, they mean a lot to people for different reasons. People get engaged there. People break up there people like come in after they found out really terrible news or they go to celebrate an anniversary and and they also become like part of people's stories so i wanted to make sure that we were giving them a good story i want to i'll jump back to the opening and what that was like in a second but you talk about people uh celebrating and you know sharing a moment at that restaurant yeah um for you not having any uh previous restaurant experience uh how did you go about making a place that you thought would be a restaurant that people would want to go in the neighborhood every single week um well i mean obviously the food was important and like we tried to not just like let the the concept um trump the execution you know what i mean um did you visit a lot of other restaurants and see what they were doing? Did you talk well, to people around yeah. New York about what they were doing? Well, or did you, know, you just kind of um, decide and then <laughs> and then roll with it? Well, uh, you know, we, we changed our menu every single day. So everything was just like the food was really just about our own vision. In terms of like creating a space that really felt like felt homey and inviting. I mean, I had been going to Marlo and Sons and Diner for forever. I used to live around the corner. And that was really the first time that I remember being in a restaurant as an adult. Of course, you have like your childhood memories of like special places. But that was the first time that I remember feeling conscious as like a person who understood what was going on in restaurants as an adult um, about, wow, there's something like really special here. And I think the thing that I lifted from there was not like, oh, well, I want to do this kind of food. It was really just about... Um, seeing how like Andrew had created a place where like the employees seemed to really like being there 
you know? And I think when you see that employees really like being where they are, it's like a completely different story. You know, it feels like being at a party that everyone wants to be at. Like, and that was the thing that I kind of took away the most. Um, Cause I think those places always were like that and they still are. And it's like a very special thing. So I really wanted to make a place that my employees felt proud of being at and they wanted to represent. And it wasn't just like, you know, when you go into a restaurant, you hear like two servers talk to each other like, Oh God, the boss or like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. You know what I mean? I wanted pe- pe- I think people who worked at Brucey for a long time, really like loved it and felt proud of it and that really rubbed off and they were it was a big party and I think when the customers came in they felt like they were part of they were in on the joke you know they were part of the fun uh often a lot of the ways that people mentally deal with working at a restaurant is by talking about someone yeah. oh the, the chef the yeah. boss like I don't there, doubt that there, that happened there, there's, <laughs> too, there, but... there's a way there's a way to kind of shift the blame to yeah, someone right exactly. to a certain extent but you were the boss yeah you were the owner you were the chef <laughs> you were in the kitchen you were in the basement yeah I had it un- <laughs> unpacking the yeah, delivery that's true. Uh, how do you mentally deal with the experience of being 26 years old and being the person who everyone is going to for the answer to their questions well honestly sometimes not that well you know Uh, that was a really challenging thing uh especially to be among your peers and those people were my friends and a lot of them still are my like dearest friends in the world um sometimes really well you know uh, at the times when i didn't deal with it well it was like suffocating it was too much you know i'm like what it like the cooking the work the floods all of that that was the like easy stuff the people like hating you sometimes and being angry with you you know that was really hard um having to yell or i guess no one has to yell but let's just say yelling um and losing my temper and like going home at the end of the night and being like i yelled today i like cursed at people you know what i mean and not to paint the wrong picture of myself because i'm not like a monster who's just like running around and like you know but there there is a uh tough man that's tough that nobody tells you about that that that's tough there is a chef mentality that can uh run be very common throughout uh, many cities that is like there's this chef as a archetype of someone who flips over mise en place and throws plates in the garbage and yells i've done that and for sure and and so that is the type of chef that some people are and yeah. some people are on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. How did you decide what type of chef you wanted to be or did time determine that for you? Well, you know what I'll say? I will say that it is the hardest employee to regulate as a boss, especially as a chef, is yourself. You know what I mean? Like when you own the restaurant, when no one's going to fire you, you know, the worst thing that could happen is someone will quit. And that's actually very bad or that you'll hurt someone's feelings, which is also terrible. But it's really hard to keep yourself in check and keep your temper in check. It's, as you know, extremely stressful to be a chef. It's so immediate. It's so quick. Like the product has to be perfect. Your reputation is on the line. Like everything happens really fast. So if something goes wrong and like a plate comes back and it's wrong or one of your cooks puts out like a raw chicken, it's so frustrating, you know? And as an employee, you have, you can't just like go crazy and throw a plate in the garbage, but as a chef and as an owner, you absolutely can. Who's going to stop you, you know, except for yourself. So self-regulation is a really hard thing. And it's something that maybe comes easier to certain personality types. Um, I feel like, you know, it's really important if you do, you know, lose your temper 
to like learn a lesson from it. Okay. I lost my temper. That was unfair. Who do I need to apologize to? What do I need to learn about for the next time? You know, cause that's just not like something that you want to do or that's okay, but it's hard. It's really hard to figure out how to be, especially honestly, like as a woman, um, it's harder to gain respect as a female boss in any field, I think. And so sometimes sternness is something you feel like you need to kind of be more, uh, you know, you need to be more aggressive sometimes so people take you seriously. Um, and that also can really backfire. It's tough. It's tough to find out. I don't think I really knew who I wanted to be until it was the end. Did, you know? did, uh, being a female chef, uh, being in charge of the kitchen, did that have, uh, did that ever make you take pause when, when you were doing things or, uh, no, I don't, I didn't really think about it that much. I mean, you know, it's a question you get asked a lot. It's tough for the obvious reasons of being a female boss in any industry is tough or being a female just walking down the street is tough. You know what I mean? It's different. It's just an obvious, but like, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough when you think that someone would respect you more if you, you know, just were a man. (laughs) So that's that's frustrating for a lot of people. We were uh, restaurant neighbors for a while. Yep. Uh, I would see you around the neighborhood. Yeah. I liked the whole feeling and the vibe of that was <laughs> that, you know, what you were doing. And I was always um, super impressed. I always looked up to you as someone who Aww. was doing their own thing. You had a business. Uh, you were there all the time. And the food was really wonderful. And but you were always at the restaurant. Yeah. And you and I was always at the restaurant. And something that we talked quietly amongst ourselves about was about finding um the personal balance yeah. and about uh the struggle to decide when to leave the restaurant. And what you alluded to is that as being the boss, uh there's no one to yell at you, but yeah. uh is, there's also no one to tell you that it's yeah. time for you to leave. So, uh, can you talk about the the balance? And yeah, yeah. Did you find a balance I being did. the owner and the chef at the same time? Yeah. Uh, on this one, I really have to give props to my now business partner and Jenny Lupo, um, who was the chef de cuisine at Brucey uh, for about three years, uh, three and a half years, and she was really the one who made it easy for me to leave. And in the beginning, it was really hard. Like I would, <laughs> she's amazing. She's like the best cook that I know, but. It was hard. I was like, okay, I'm going to leave for the night. I'm going to leave you a list of directions. And then, you know, with just a look, like she was so wonderful, even when we weren't like best friends uh, and so respectful, she'd never say this, but with just a look, she's like, I got this. You know what I mean? And then like slowly but surely I was like, oh yeah, she's got this. So, um, a couple of like a year into us working together, it was just like easy to kind of, that made it so much easier. Um, and then, but aside from that, it's just like, realizing that like your life matters, you know what I mean? And that the restaurant really matters. But like what I tried to do was really, really like drive home the things that were important to me during like menu meetings. Our menu meetings were so important. So like re going over steps of service, like making everyone like making jokes and like asking people about their days, not as like some kind of trick. I really did want to know about their day, but just like engaging people and making sure that like we were all on board and we were all a team and like everyone knew what I wanted and not what just I wanted, but just really like what was the right thing to do, you know? Um, and that made it easy for me to leave. Cause I'm like, these people understand what to do, you know? But how do you, uh, delegate while also creating, a safe space for people to collaborate yeah. where, uh, the restaurant still stays, uh, in the form of your original vision. Well, how, do, how do you create that environment? I mean, I spent a lot of time with my general managers too. And, you know, 
they would understand like how I would feel about things. Um, and we would kind of really get on the same page that like all of the GMs that I had over the years were also like really crucial. Having a good GM, anyone out there listening who wants to know like the best thing you can have in a, if you're going to own a restaurant, have a good chef. Um, if it's not you, or even if it is you, like in my case, it was Jenny, um, and have a good GM and, you know, be open to people's opinion, right? Like be open to people's opinion, but understand that you're the boss. And at the end of the day, like, you know, uh, you know best, but you don't know everything. I guess that's it, right? Like you, you have a vision for what you want to do, but you're, I mean, I didn't know everything, you know, there was like a lot of things that like someone would be like, oh, I think we should be doing it this way. I think we should fold the napkins that way. Or I think that, uh, our check should be presented this way or, you know, it'd be more efficient if, you know, this is how like water service goes, right? Like, I think it's about not being a control freak. That's like a very hard thing not to do, right? Like, you know, you want to have your hands in everything, but you have to like, trust yourself that you're going to hire people who understand you, you train them well, and then, you know, that's the best you can do. Brucey closed on February 15th of 2016. Yeah. What did it feel like to close? Man, um, the actual closing, like the day, it felt like extremely emotional. It felt like, uh, it felt like if you were in a really, really deep relationship with someone and they got a job in like Russia and they were like moving away and you just knew it wasn't going to work, you know, cause it was, it was, uh, it was relieving in some way. You know, there's a lot of other things that I really want to do with my career now that, you know, don't lend themselves to having a restaurant that ran the same way Brucey ran. You know, it was like we were talking about, it was a unique kind of place and had a unique set of systems. Um, it was also brutally painful. Like it was so hard and not just like, Oh my God, this is so hard. There's so much work. It was so emotionally difficult and physically difficult. And the pieces of owning a business, um, you know, it, it's just, it can be really heartbreaking. Um, but it was also my life, my entire life, you know, I loved it so deeply and it was my creative outlet and it was my identity, you know? Um, so it was a really mixed bag. And on the day it closed, I think I was so full of feeling I didn't know how to feel sad, you know, but the, I will say that the months following it were very dark at times in terms of just feeling very lost and without like a place and not understanding like, you know, what to do or who I was or what was going on. Cause I defined myself by the fact that I was Zara and I owned Brucey and that was, I'm a chef and you know, people were like, what do you do? And I'm like, um, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> Some restaurants barely make it a year. Uh, yeah. Brucey made it more than five. Yeah. Do you view Brucey as uh, a success or a failure? That's a really interesting question. Um, I really, I felt like a failure um, when I closed. Um, I felt like I, I felt mostly like a failure because I wanted as a young woman to be an example for other young women. Um, that they can like do things. They can be restaurant owners. They can be anything. You know what I mean? And I think like the more success that I had at the restaurant, the more articles that were written, the more write-ups, more features. It was like another thing that like hopefully some other woman will see this and think that like, you know, feel inspired and like they can do it. Um, so when it closed, that really felt hard. That made me feel like a really huge failure. Um, but I think those feelings are natural when like something that you try hard at doesn't work the way you wanted it to. Um, but I think it was a success. I think it was a great success. I look back 
on the things that we accomplished, you know, on some of the exciting events we did, on the press we got, on the people we met, on the food we made, um, the, you know, thousands and thousands of people that came in there and had a fun time. And it's, it, it is obviously was a success, you know? Um, I think you measure success differently. There's financial success. There's, you know, emotional success. There's creative success. So I guess it was a mixture of both, right? Knowing what you know today, do you tell the 25-year-old version of yourself to do it again? That's a really good question, too. You've got good questions. You know, <laughs> I think that you have a future in this. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think about the money that I had when I first started. It's hard not to think about it financially and think about, wow, I could have bought a brownstone back then. And I could have not, you know, I could have traveled and... Those are all like hypothetical situations, but I would have never, I would have never been sitting right here. And this actually really means a lot to me, you know, like, and I would never know some people that are like incredibly valuable. I've never met my boyfriend who I'm like so lucky and like thrilled to be with. I would have never met Jenny and Nicole and my business partners now. And yeah, so I would tell the 25 year old me. I would have told the 25 year old me to like maybe save like 50 grand <laughs> and just like put it away. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I would definitely say do it um, because it was incredible. It was the greatest party ever and it was so beautiful and fun. So yes. After the couple months of darkness, you emerged uh, and you've now founded a new project with yeah. uh, your partners, Jenny and Nicole. Yeah. Uh, it's called High Five Girl. Yeah. What's High Five Girl? Um, okay. Well, shortly, I'll just tell you a little bit about the name. Um, I was walking down the street about a year ago and I saw this girl walking down the street. Oh, and she was dressed really cool and I wanted to like high five her. And so that's where the name kind of came from. Just like empowering women. High five girl is, um, going to be a blog. That's kind of the center of it. A feminist food blog, like story driven, kind of like hard to talk about issues written through story, uh, with recipes. We're also doing consulting and kind of like large scale catering projects, but restaurant consulting is one thing that uh, we're really excited about. That's part of high five girl. So you get to take all the things that you did really well and didn't do well and mush them together and help other people do really well. So that's actually the best part of it. Meatball and pasta plans in the future for high five girl in some know. capacity. I, Jenny and I were walking by the space on uh, Smith street the other day and it was like a little ice place that wanted a pop up during the winter. And we're like, Oh man, we should just like, like sling meatballs out of this thing all winter. So perhaps, perhaps the gears are turning. Yeah. <laughs> Zara, thank you so much for thank being you. with us uh, and being on the first episode of the line. Thanks. This was so fun. Join us next week, Tuesdays at 11. This is the line. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.